This program is not about suicide. If you or someone you know needs immediate assistance with suicidal ideation or depression, please contact your local 24-7 crisis support service. If you're in Australia, try Lifeline on 13 11 14, Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800 or the other services listed on our website at wheelercentercom slash betteroffdead. There is no death. There's only me, me, me who's dying. I still see it. Uh, I can recall everything that happened as if it happened yesterday. Uh, I was standing in the corridor and I was shaking and sobbing and uh, the nurse took me away, gave me tea and sympathy and everything. And I was so grateful uh, that she supported me, meant so very much. This is Mariska Costa of the Netherlands describing her memories of being involved in a euthanasia death six years ago. Mariska is not a family member recalling the passing of a loved one. She is the doctor who performed the euthanasia. It goes beyond everything. You're treading into life and death. And you are trained to always stay on the side of life. Death is a no-go area. Doctors in the Netherlands have been treading in the no-go area of death and euthanasia for over a decade now. Most of the cases they deal with are people who are terminally ill, but a small number are not. Could it be that they have trodden too far? The fear of a bad death. Let's not make bad laws. And you'll go to sleep. Right. Denying them another option. This leaves me no choice. Perfect goodbye. Of eugenic impulse. The devaluation of We just don't talk about it. Against the invasion of death. We play the game. I felt judged. It was over. People want to know. I know they can't control it. The police are obliged to charge me. What the hell can you do? Murder, manslaughter. Denying them another option. Don't do this lightly. My name is Andrew Denton, and you're listening to Better Off Dead. According to Dutch law, killing another person is a crime, but under certain conditions, a doctor who kills a patient will not be prosecuted. This is ethicist Theo Bohr, speaking by video link to an anti-euthanasia conference in Adelaide. Theo knows Dutch euthanasia laws well. For nine years, he sat on one of their euthanasia review committees, each one made up of a doctor, a lawyer and an ethicist. Their job is to review all euthanasia cases to see that they have complied with the law. In 2014, Theo resigned, concerned not just about the rising numbers of euthanasia cases, but also about their nature. Whereas in the first years, hardly any patients with psychiatric illnesses or dementia appear in reports, these numbers are now sharply on the rise. Many of these patients could have lived for months, years or even decades. Theo's concerns didn't stop there. Euthanasia for a man with autism who fears retirement. Assisted dying for a mother of two suffering from tinnitus. In 2012, under the name End of Life Clinic, a nationwide network of traveling euthanasia teams became active. Mobile death units. Others have warned me about these, just as I've been warned that in the Netherlands there were people being euthanized without their consent and that doctors have become desensitised to the idea of killing patients. Put together, these warnings made a single allegation. 
that the Netherlands is a slippery slope whose euthanasia laws are now bent out of all recognition. So I've come to see if the warnings hold true, to find out, if you're a doctor working here, how slippery the slope is, and if it really is a slope at all. My name is Stephen Pleiter. I will be 60 this year and I'm the Chief Executive Officer of the Levens Einde Clinic, which is quite a unique organisation uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, can I refer to it as the life-ending clinics? Is that yes, a correct? Uh, that's right. Great. Mm. When the life- Stephen Pleiter is a retired physician leading a team of 80 doctors and nurses. They specialise in the very cases Theo Bohr is concerned about, where a person who may not be terminally ill is helped to die. Well, we're open now for over three years. We see at this moment about 1,100 people a year. And there is a a common uh, red line in in what we see. What we do and what we specialise in is investigating complex euthanasia requests. Those who hold out the Netherlands as a textbook case of slippery slope point to a law originally designed to help the terminally ill that has now slipped to include, for example, those with dementia. But Dutch law wasn't written to deal only with certain diseases. Guided by doctors themselves, it was deliberately created for people whose suffering is unbearable and untreatable. And that can mean many things. Psychiatric cases, Alzheimer patients, elderly people with a a number of serious, let's say, functional uh, limitations as part of becoming older. Gerrit Kimsmer is a doctor of 40 years standing. He was a member of the Euthanasia Review Committees for 12 years. According to the review committees, these cases for the past years have been deemed acceptable. And now you see that concerning cancer patients, you can say it's a 90% medical professional consensus. With respect to Alzheimer patients, it may be 50-50 psychiatric cases the same. So the life in the clinics actually fill that gap, so to say, where physicians feel they are willing to help patients die with cancer, feel they are not willing to help patients die with psychiatric diseases. The life-ending clinics came into existence because of the Dutch Right to Die organisation known locally as the NVVE. 160,000 members strong, bigger than any political party in the Netherlands, they are essentially the patient's advocates, advising them about their end-of-life choices and arguing for their rights under the law. What the MVVE discovered was that despite unbearable and untreatable suffering being the basis of the law, some patients were being refused their legal right to euthanasia. Some doctors refused on moral grounds, others had a different reason. Stephen Pleiter. The reason that these doctors hesitate to do the investigation themselves is that these cases are rare. So a general practitioner cannot gain the experience in doing this uh, investigation rapidly enough, and that's why he is hesitating. So in 2012, the life-ending clinic was established, working within the Dutch euthanasia law to deal with rare and complex cases. If it applies to the law, and if we really understand from each person why this is the solution that this person is looking for, then we respect the choice of that person and are willing to help that person. Just as patients are represented by the NVVE, doctors are represented by the Royal Dutch Medical Society. 
What do they think of the life-ending clinic? Spokesman Eric Willick. First is that we felt very hesitant about this initiative because they started as a clinic where they would help patients within a certain time to grant their request. What they're doing now is completely different. They have mobile teams because uh, we also stated that most patients want to die at home. So if you want to take care of patients, you feel most comfortable in their own situation. So then you have to be at the place where patients uh, stay. So these are the mobile death units I've been warned about, established, as it turns out, because most people want to die at home. Nothing sinister here, just a compassionate and practical response to a very human need. Nonetheless, Eric explains to me that some Dutch doctors worry that because the life-ending clinic has only one purpose, to grant a patient euthanasia, they don't establish a proper doctor-patient relationship. I put this to Stephen Pleiter. The solution, you need to be quite weak uh, in order to stop eating and drinking. So, I'm sure you're aware of the discomfort some, and I think the major criticism that I've come across is that this place is a one-stop shop, that all it sells is euthanasia. Do you understand that discomfort? Yes, I understand, and I disagree, if you don't mind. Yes, we are a, a one-type solution shop, if, if, if that's the situation. But that's like the dentist or like the eye doctor. There are many specialists in the world that are focused on one type of area or one type of solution. So what we do and what we specialize in is investigating complex euthanasia requests that are not being held by other, other doctors. We know we are being looked at as an organization that works on the edges of the legislation in the, in the Netherlands. By the way, we are not searching these edges, uh, but the patients coming to the labor and bring us at the edges. Okay, that's, that's a fact. So we need to be careful, that's why we decide. Indeed, they are being looked at. One of the hallmarks of the Dutch euthanasia laws is how carefully they're scrutinised and how openly they're discussed. Gerrit Kimsmer, for example, also expresses concerns that the nature of the life-ending clinic may mean that the basic doctor-patient relationship is missing. They start with the request to be helped to die of a patient they've never met before. I find it problematic. That is not a doctor-patient relationship that originally accompanied the whole institutionalization of euthanasia in the Netherlands. So it's, I would say it's the next step that I see some validity for, because there are incorrectly refused euthanasia cases. But I, it worries me also because it uh, misses a, a basic element that I believe should be there. What's interesting about Kimsmer's critique is that he is also a consultant to the life-ending clinic, in airing his concerns, he underlines the strength of the system. Rather than being slippery or devious, as some would imply, this kind of open conversation is exactly what you would hope for when dealing with such complex medical issues. In that same spirit, Stephen Pleiter responds. We would say, yes, it would be better if the general practitioner would be doing this. But since there are a number of general practitioners that are not willing to help a patient, we think the demand of the patient is that serious and that strong, then there should be help. Instead of having a typical doctor-patient relation, we are having a what I would call a trust relation. So if we come to a patient, we, we don't take our time to, to drink a cup of coffee or, or have a social talk. It goes on to the subject immediately. And a good relation where trust is there is established very rapidly. The contacts that our teams have 
are long-lasting. It's uh, very common that we uh, sit with the patient for one and a half to two hours, uh, many times. So uh, it's a different type of relation. And I'm absolutely confident that's a good way of uh, doing these investigations. In 2014, the Life Ending Clinic helped 231 people to die. Only a tiny proportion of the close to 5,000 Dutch euthanasia deaths in that year, the total number of which is less than 4% of all the people who die in the Netherlands annually. Still, even seen through this prism, the point is the nature, not the number of cases. You are dealing with cases which, by their very nature, are difficult sometimes to clearly define. They are, if you like, at the edge of the knowledge of uh, medical science. With psychiatric illnesses, how do you assess untreatable suffering? Well, the, the investigation, first of all, takes more time. But then the psychiatric patients that end up and that we uh, are willing to, to perform euthanasia on, those patients have been in psychiatric uh, clinics, etc., for many, 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 many years, most of the times for decades. They've had treatments, a lot of them, and only after a long-lasting wish to die and many, many treatments, we are willing to say, okay, um, uh, there is no treatment that makes any sense any, any, anymore, even though in psychiatry always there is another treatment. But at a certain point, you can say that it does not make sense. And like someone in cancer, some of the time um, you can't do anything anymore. That uh, occurs to psychiatric patients uh, also. So... That's the situation that we help them. Psychiatric euthanasias are a very complicated issue and we'll return to them in detail when we look at what's happening in Belgium. But what of the equally challenging question of patients with Alzheimer's or dementia? If the basis of your law is that only a mentally competent adult can request euthanasia, how does that apply to patients like these? Here there's a tension between what Dutch law allows and how that law is carried out in practice. Eric Willick from the Royal Dutch Medical Society. Um, the bill was discussed in Parliament and it stated really clear that although in, in the law article part 2 states that a written request replaces the oral request, history shows also that you have to discuss this with your physician as well because otherwise a physician cannot be really convinced that the request was done by a competent patient. So you have to, how, how can you know? So it's not directly put in the law, but um, we learned from, from analyzing again that you really have to do an oral request because if a request is done 10 years ago, how do you know that the patient really doesn't want, does want this situation still? That's what we think also from an ethical point of view. That's more as what doctors say. I cannot kill the patients, which I never discuss all this kind of, of, of topics. If the law says that it's possible for a patient to be euthanised based on a written directive, how does the life-ending clinic deal with that? Stephen Pleiter. A number of doctors we've spoken to are uncomfortable with the idea that Alzheimer's patients be euthanised. And their main concern is how is it possible to show due care, which is that key criteria, to people who may not be mentally competent or even capable of communicating at the time of their death. How do you address that problem? So let me be absolutely clear in that. The Levenseinde Clinic has not given any patient euthanasia that was not able to express their will. So dementia is, uh, or Alzheimer is a, a disease that takes quite some time before it's in the situation that 
you don't know where you are, you don't know who you are, uh, you don't know your relatives anymore. So there are people that uh, really think about this and don't want to get into that uh, situation need to come to us early and ask for help in an early stage. So they're compass mentors, uh, so they know what they're asking. It's like Cinderella, you need to leave the party before midnight. If you have Alzheimer's or dementia, how is it possible to know, to really know, that you are at five minutes to midnight? Meet Barbara Heatman, whose mother Jana did choose to leave the party early. My mother was an enjoying person. So if there was something, music or uh, the, the grandchildren or <clears throat> a good book or something on TV. Jana Heatman had lived with Alzheimer's for seven years. There was laughter and joy in her life still. But she told her three daughters she didn't ever want to reach the point of not recognizing her family. Because she knew with Alzheimer, you will turn out to be a totally different person. But she said, no, I won't, don't want to be another person. I have a good life. Uh, I mean, she was then 80. Yeah, or, or, and she thought there will not be more new nice things or whatever. And it will only get worse. Is it possible that your mother felt like she might be a burden to you and your sister? As a burden? No, no. I said, no, you, you can live and sit and we will still come, of course. So Jana Heekman went to see her local GP. So she said, hello, I'm uh, Jana Heekman. I have Alzheimer and if it's getting worse, I like to die. And then the doctor said, uh, well, I cannot do that. I never did that and I don't want to do it. I don't have experience with that. At her GP's suggestion, Jana contacted the Life Ending Clinic. Before they would meet with her, as Stephen Pleiter explains, she had to fill in a detailed application form. It asks why the person wants to have help with euthanasia, since that request is quite serious. So it's a long application form that they fill in. When we receive that, the first thing we do is that one of our doctors gives a call to the general practitioner of the patient in order to ask whether they know the request of the patient, um, what their own position with regards to the request is. Also, we ask that doctor for um, information from the medical files of the patient. So that helps us to, to do a pre-investigation, which is a first step and which is uh, helping us to decide whether we need to set, set in a team or whether we need to have a psychiatrist at first to, to uh, have an interview with the patient or whether we already can say this doesn't make sense and this will not apply for euthanasia so we don't need to spend all the, all the effort. With help from Barbara, Jana answered every question but one. But then we come to the question, do you want to die now? But then she said, nah, no. I said, okay, we stop. So we put it aside. I said, you call me if you want it. A few months later, Barbara received a call from the family GP. She said Jana had visited her again to talk about dying before she got lost in her disease. And then the doctor, I say, and your mother is really going backwards and now she can still say it. And that is very important with Alzheimer or with all the euthanasia or help with uh, dying because you have to be totally, um, yeah, bills bequam, uh, 
Competent. Competent. So your GP, even though she certainly would not euthanize someone with Alzheimer's and maybe didn't even approve, she nonetheless saw the need in your mother yeah. and was prepared to Because her mother was asking. Jana completed her application for the life-ending clinic. For three months, while the clinic investigated, the family heard nothing. Then a doctor's visit was arranged. And he would just talk with my mother, just for seeing how is the situation. But he, he said, OK, I think this is a, a real question because he was asking my mother and she had, she had difficult to find the words, but uh, then she could. And uh, if you say, what is dying? Then she said, no, I just want to die. Like this, mm-hmm. you know, putting her hands under, under her face, like going to sleep softly or something. At that first meeting, Jana spoke to the doctor for two hours. But we had a good feeling. And then he said, there will be a a test. Uh, Your GP has to find a psychiatrist. That person, so not known by anybody else, will come to your house and ask you questions to know if you are depressed or not and if you are competent. Because if you are depressed and you want to die, no. You really have to want it with your deepest will, yeah? Once Jana had passed the psychiatrist's tests, the life-ending clinic began examining her request more closely. After that, a team will be formed based on the case, and that team will do the investigation. And that investigation takes as many interviews as the team requires to find out whether they can feel with the patient, so why this request for this patient makes sense, and whether all criteria are, are met as as many interviews as, as it takes. It's, that's up to the decision of the team. And the team are, are highly trained uh, professionals, doctors and, and nurses who know exactly what, what they're, they're doing. So this, could take, this process could take several months? Absolutely. All decisions are about life and death. A few weeks after the assessment by the psychiatrist, a second meeting was arranged between Jana Heatman and a team from the clinic. We want to do everything in the whole family, so we were sitting there around. But that was not the, that was not how they wanted it because my mother was too much looking uh, to us when she was searching for a thing. How old am I? Um, Eighty. Huh? How old am I? You know. So she was asking, and so they didn't like that. So they said, "Okay, we had this talk, but now uh, we come again. We come next week." They said, and then we want to talk to you alone. And then it makes sense they wanted to do that because yeah. they also needed to know that what is this was your mum, my not, mother not had you to or say your sister. Totally from her own uh, brain, heart, whatever. I want this, but yeah, there was three um, conversations with that doctor and that nurse, and it was also recorded, by the way. Uh, that was for for justice, of course, for later. So they hear my mother say what you want. And I... for Barbara, the whole experience felt somehow unreal. Because we were uh, nervous for our mother that she would pass all the exams. But then the other hand, what were we waiting for? For our mother to die. And that feeling I never had in my life. Having satisfied her GP, a psychiatrist and the life-ending clinic that she was mentally competent, Jana still had one more test to pass. But uh, then, you know that there also had to come a, a second opinion? The skin yeah. doctors, yeah. Skin doctors. Skin doctors are specially trained to make sure that the due care criteria of Dutch euthanasia law are upheld. Stephen Pleider. Absolutely. 
that's one of the criteria that needs to be met. So we don't uh, find friendly uh, scan doctors who we know and who we know how they how they think. We just go through the the front door and a scan doctor is being uh, allocated to our case, and, and it's not the other way around. And do scan doctors sometimes uh, say that it's not appropriate to go ahead with euthanasia? Yes, they they do, or they hesitate. Sometimes they say not at this moment. You need to do a little bit more, or you need to do quite some so, some more. For Jana Heatman, determined to die as herself, not as the ghost of the person she was, this last test meant everything. So then uh, the scan doctor came. Then she had to do it on her own. My sister came in, and my mother was writing words: "Ik wil dood." She put it on paper, and she was practicing because she said, "I have to remember those words." Ik wil dat, I, I want to die. So, the person's claim, they said in the end, well, I think you're clear. You made your point clear. So, they were making it more and more uh, realistic. Shortly after, a call came. Jana had fulfilled all the due care criteria. A date was set for her to die. December 4 only a few weeks away. So we hang up. What's this all about? My mother said. Yeah, it's about when you can die. Ah, then she said, ah, it has been more than enough. It can, it can happen, you know. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm ready for it. So that was a relief. So she gave the answer. We were all in panic because, of course, then it becomes so real when you have a date. No, but she said, hey, listen, I, have a, I, I did enough say goodbye because there was also in November a kind of party. And so there were all friends and Nayaso and people came. So they knew your mum was going to die. Yeah, and it's still that was strange because in the end, it was all depending on my mother. Would she say yes or no? And at the 2nd of December, we really had what you call the last supper. And then we were all drunk and having, we say, toast. And my, you see my mother all the time with a liqueur and singing a, a song. And your, and your mom was happy. Yeah. And the moment she knew that one week before, she was the most relaxed. When she knew that the day would come, she was most relaxed. And then she, I, I felt she was becoming almost an ambassador of the self-chosen end of life. After seven years of living with Alzheimer's, Jana Heapman had decided to leave the party before midnight. Still, despite all the care taken, Barbara had the slightest thread of doubt. And we were in the flow of my mother. She was the leader. Eh? And it was good that she could say that in the end. And, but I also felt that she really wanted. I wanted to help. But Barbara's slight doubt was dispelled the night before Jana was due to die when she overheard her mother reply to a question from the clinic nurse. Would Jana prefer to die by injection or by drinking the medication? And then my mother said, Oh no, I take the drink. I did everything myself in my life, so also I do this. And this, yeah, so good to hear. Because then you can see my mother, she is really competent, she knows what she's doing. Despite advancing Alzheimer's, Jana Heatman had been able to persistently express her clear wish to die. But are there others in Jana's position who the clinic refuses? Absolutely. We have a general rule. Uh, the team needs to be for 100% certain that they do the, the right thing. 
And if they hesitate on that, whether they think it's 1% doubt in, in there, then they will not perform euthanasia. It must be a hard thing to say no uh, to patients, particularly after you've been through a long consultation process. Yeah, that is that is difficult. We know that we are a kind of last resort for these uh, uh, persons applying for help of the Leverzellen Clinic or the end of life clinic. Um, but that doesn't mean that we should step over our uh, edges and over our borders. The most critical thing is that we are 100% sure that a euthanasia request has been investigated correctly and that for this patient, this is the only solution available. This caution in assessing whether or not patients are eligible is borne out by the fact that two out of every three euthanasia requests in the Netherlands are declined. It's clear, listening to Jana Hickman's story, that the criteria of due care, designed by Dutch doctors and laid down in law, are taken seriously. But Canadian anti-euthanasia campaigner Alex Schadenberg doesn't think this is necessarily true. He goes so far as to say that some Dutch and Belgian doctors are criminals and that they're hiding their crimes. Citing official figures of a thousand deaths recently in Belgium and a similar number in the past by doctors in the Netherlands, deaths which he says occurred without the patient's consent, Alex makes a startling accusation. So is it your assertion that those thousand deaths or the majority of them were in effect a murder because they were not deaths that anyone had consented to? Uh, murder, manslaughter, it depends on how you define it in the law. Yes, they are. They're, they're deaths that occurred... That is, the doctors admitting that they intentionally hasten those deaths. Not only, says Alex, are Dutch doctors killing people without their consent, but they're hiding this fact because these deaths are not recorded as cases of euthanasia. When he first told me this, I thought, if this is true, it surely throws into question the entire system. I wondered how it could be that doctors are killing patients without their consent and then not reporting it. Gerrit Kimsmer studied the same Netherlands data quoted by Alex. Uh, cause of great alarm. What can you tell me about the circumstances of those unrequested deaths? Yeah, so the 1,000 cases were from 1991, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2010, they have been lowered to less than 200. So they do exist, but why? The majority of the cases, patients had said before that they did not want to suffer extensively. The medical situations of these cases were all very hopeless. And most interesting, I found, and I hope your Canadian informant knew that too, that even in Australia there were more cases of, of life ending without explicit request. Can you explain that? And why would that be happening in Australia? Well, those are the patients who are in a hopeless situation, no cure is possible, are suffering extensively. And what physicians often do is they raise the morphium level. They raise the morphium level even beyond the level of, of treating excruciating pain. So they hope that a quick raise of, of morphine will will really end life by taking away the breath. So this is something that takes place largely within palliative care? It takes place in palliative care. Uh, if you look at the level of morphine use, you, know, you see that morphine is used mainly, mostly, in countries who are heavily opposed to euthanasia and assisted suicide. This I do know about. It's how my dad was helped to die after falling into a coma, slowly, painfully, using morphine. These are the unrequested deaths Alex describes as murders. 
That they are not recorded as euthanasia cases is, according to Eric Willick from the Royal Dutch Medical Society, absolutely appropriate. We don't talk about euthanasia if there's not a request. So it's, it's deliberately ending the patient without request. That's what it's about. And sometimes the, the areas are grey. In such situations, sometimes doctors hope that patients will die. They prescribe the medications, for instance, in the, the medications for palliative sedations. Give you the medication, uh, give you, do you give a lot of medication? Do you speed up? That's other questions we are talking about. And sometimes doctors think they killed their patients. They did not. If you look at the amounts and the, the speed of those, it's a grey area. There is nothing hidden about any of this. The Dutch question and record doctors' end-of-life actions more meticulously than any country on earth. That's how they know the practice sometimes still happens, though far less now that euthanasia laws have been introduced. Dutch doctors have been tagged killers because they're describing in detail the decisions doctors the world over make when their patients are dying. The medication they prescribe, the doses, even if they hope in their hearts their suffering patients might die more quickly. They tick boxes on death certificates and fill in questionnaires that shine light on the dying hours, an honest effort to be transparent, but one open to a cynical twist. Even though doctors helped write Dutch euthanasia laws, that doesn't mean they find them easy to carry out. Mariska Costa, a pulmonary specialist, was profoundly affected by helping one of her patients to die. I, I remember it as if it happened last week. Actually, it was, uh, uh, it's now over six years ago, but I remember it vividly. Her first experience came when an elderly patient, hospitalised and dying, requested Mariska help her to die. Her children adored her. Her husband adored her. And she said to me, what I am having now, this disease, which is wasting me. I feel my strength sipping away. It's so contrary to who I am, who I always have been, how I want to be remembered. For over a week, uh, every day, after work hours, I went to her, we sat together and we talked. And during that week, I saw her deteriorating because she was severely ill. We came to know each other. <clears throat> In a way, we became friends. And after a week, I said, well, yes, now I see that giving you your death is the very last thing that I can do for you. And now I am willing to do that. Following the due care criteria, Mariska ended her patient's life. What happened next caught her by surprise. I was standing in the corridor and I was shaking and sobbing and uh, the nurse took me away, gave me tea and sympathy and everything. And I was so grateful uh, that she supported me, meant so very much. And the whole procedure uh, was so emotionally uprooting that I was really very grateful for the support from the nurses. For doctors, it's very difficult to really accept that their patient is going to die. When it came to the, the moment where you did what you were asked to do, 
did your training take over or were you still very emotionally engaged? Both. But I I really felt I am doing something that's that's huge, that's grand. Uh, I'm going beyond what is normal uh, medical care. That really cost me. I still see it. I can recall everything that happened as if it happened yesterday. And when you recall, what is the what is the strong thing that remains for you? Uh, the thing that I see in my mind is uh, the moment when the family had left and the nurse and I went back into her room to look at her for the last time. And it was an evening um, in the late summer. The light was golden, uh, beautiful sunsets, and the light was on her face. And she was lying there so completely tranquil, so essentially at peace, so different from the days before when she had actually been suffering. For Mariska, suggestions that doctors in the Netherlands become desensitised to killing their patients couldn't be further from the truth. You don't do this lightly. It's not something doctors like to do. They don't. If you can get around euthanasia as a, as, as a doctor, you will do it. Um, because it costs you. For some people, cases where patients who don't have a terminal illness but who are helped to die will always be sensitive. Particularly if, like Theo Bohr, you have a moral objection to euthanasia in the first place. Just like many of you, I consider the active termination of a human life to be intrinsically problematic. But Teo's is a minority voice. According to polling conducted by The Economist magazine in 2015, public support for euthanasia in the Netherlands runs at over 80%. And to date, no other member of the Euthanasia Review Committees has joined him in publicly expressing concerns. The fact that Teo has simply highlights one of the great strengths of the Dutch system that it's transparent and open to debate. What his concerns do not illuminate, however, is a slippery slope. Instead, it's opposite. A law devised by doctors to encompass the unbearably and untreatably ill, and a system where close scrutiny is not only demanded, but enforced. When I asked Gerrit Kimsmer about the slippery slope, he was emphatic in his response. We've been talking about the more difficult areas of Alzheimer's and psychiatric illness. That is the slippery slope that some people choose to describe, is it not? No, I don't think so. Because the reviews on a case-by-case basis make it possible to control it. A slippery slope is is, uh, something that even if you want to, you cannot control it. We have the safeguards before and what we are confronted with is within society, different moral limits, different moral conceptions about a good death. The fact that Theo de Boer disagrees with it means only that he holds a different opinion about the rights of human beings. And he's a Christian. He believes that life is uh, is precious and is God's gift, and actually it's impossible to return the gift. For Kimsma 
and the overwhelming majority of his fellow citizens, it's about an entirely different view of the universe to Teo Bohr. One where people have a right to determine what happens at the end of their lives. What we do see is that there is a shift towards autonomy, meaning that people get the death that they choose for, that they request. And in itself, I cannot see that that is immoral unless uh, it is the case that as a society we have failed to support an individual. But that is not the case. We are being transparent and I think we had a good system. We, We should be proud of it. Dutch people don't die more easily than anyone else. Death remains mysterious, grand. Dutch doctors weep and tremble when they help someone die. In Dutch homes, families shake and blink at the unreality of it all, just like they do in ours. But unlike in ours, in the Netherlands, there are clear and comfortable conversations about the end, which, thanks to Dutch law, means that people don't need to die the lonely, fearful, agonising deaths they're dying in Australia. And in those conversations is a word you don't often associate with dying, beautiful. Grateful children describe the beautiful deaths of their parents, eaten up by cancer, eroded by Alzheimer's, who know that there is nothing left for them but suffering. Not people who don't value their lives, but people who can rationally see that for them, their lives no longer have value. Under Dutch law, they get the opportunity to choose their ending without shame or fear. Better with joy and the chance to farewell the ones they love with nothing left unsaid. And for those left behind, who have seen their loved ones die well, instead of the scars carved by that awful question, should we have done more, there are just the gentle tears we all shed for the dead, and for ourselves. As Jana Heapman's story shows, even on the fringes, those cases so beloved of the slippery slopers, where many Dutch doctors simply will not tread, but where the life-ending clinic willingly go, great caution is exercised. This is a mature and sober conversation. Even if doctors disagree, and some do, and they always will, on the limits of their law, they all understand the seriousness and due care that must and does lie at the heart of their system. Yes, it's possible to cite the rising numbers of Alzheimer's and psychiatric cases as cause for alarm, but not if you keep it in perspective. These are still a tiny percentage of the roughly 5,000 euthanasia deaths in the Netherlands last year, themselves less than 4% of all the people who die there annually. But even if those numbers were to double, each one of them would still represent a human being with suffering so unbearable that they have asked for help to die. Think about that. How terrible must things be for any human to reach that point where living has become harder than dying? I'll say it again. This is a mature conversation, built on years of openness and a willingness to look straight on at the reality of all societies, including ours, that there is a small percentage of every population who will suffer horribly before they die and who medical science can't treat. Faced with the choice between turning away from their suffering because their own morality instructed them to, or stepping forward with compassion and due care to help, the Dutch chose to step forward. Is it possible that we might do the same?
If you'd like to know more, head to the episode page at wheelercenter.com slash betteroffdead. Next episode, I'm heading to Belgium, home of the most liberal euthanasia laws in the world. Home also of Tom Mortier, a man who claims his mother was wrongly killed because of them. Tom's story is being used around the world as a cautionary tale about the slippery slope of euthanasia. But is it a true reflection of a law and a society gone wrong? Twelve angels from the north Twelve angels from the south Twelve angels from the east Twelve angels from the west Stephen, you've explained things very clearly. Thank you. I hope I'm never in this building again in my life, but don't take that personally. Okay, you're you're welcome. And even if you change your mind, you're still welcome. I'm not coming back, Stephen. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Angels shooting from your brow. Angels leaping from your mouth. Angels lighting on your shoulders. East and west, north and south. Better Off Dead is produced by Andrew Denton and Bronwyn Reid for Thought Fox and the team from the Wheeler Centre. Visit wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead to hear the series and subscribe and to learn more about the people and ideas from each episode. Angels leaping from your fingers Angels dancing on your breast Angels happy just to linger North and south, east and west